It is official. As of last week, the United States will be pulling out of Afghanistan. So for this episode, I talk with Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint and the Havoc Journal writer formerly known as Log Cinco about whether this is the right move for the United States and, for that matter, for Afghanistan. We look at it pretty much from every angle. We look at the counterterrorism aspects, the nation-building aspects. We talk about the geopolitics involved. Most importantly, for the guy glaring at me from his refrigerator box across the street, we look at it from the drug angle and the methamphetamine angle. Really tempted to make a joke about Afghanistan withdrawal and methamphetamine, but I'm going to try to resist. Although I kind of just made that joke, I guess, in a roundabout sort of way. Anyway, all three of us have done time in Afghanistan, so we discuss why the country and its future matters or doesn't. And I say this in the episode, and I'm going to double down on it now. We will be back there militarily within four years in some way. Why do I think that? Well, you got to listen to the episode to find out. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. So welcome to this episode of the Weekly Havoc, a roundtable discussion of the week's events by the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Chris is a writer at Havoc Journal and a current federale who writes under the pseudonym Log Cinco. He served in the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, 5th Special Forces Group, and a bunch of other assignments. He did 22 years in the Army. His last eight focused on military diplomatic shenanigans in the Western Hemisphere. Chris, welcome. Thank you very much. Proud to be here. Pleasure. pleasure <laughs> no, glad you're here. I uh, said we got a, we got a hot week this week, so this will be a fun one. Charlie Faint is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He is the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea. Four mass no three master's degrees three master's degrees Charlie three three okay mm-hmm. I don't want to oversell you you know because. We don't have enough bullet points on your on your resume already. So three master's degrees. Well, like like I said, Chris, I'd like to cash them in like Monopoly houses into a hotel for a, for a doctor, but apparently it doesn't you work. You know, when that you way. cash in things in Monopoly, it's only for half the value. I learned that the hard way. That's Ooh. the joy of having a six year old and playing Monopoly and teaching him Monopoly. So I learned that. So you could cash them in anyway at full value. So take comfort in that, I guess. All right, but fair anyway, enough. fair enough. You have enough master's degrees to even talk about cashing them in, and you're currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and of course, owner of the Havoc Journal, and unconfirmed, but an expert in rolling up camo nets on Saturday mornings from <laughs> all reports. <laughs> What's up, Charlie? <laughs> hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back hey, on the course. show. Don't hit the working man. Don't hit the working man. I'm just saying. <laughs> all right. So this week, obviously, uh, we can't escape the news story. Are we right to withdraw from Afghanistan? So the way this will work, Chris and I will discuss this in depth and with full spectrum of raging opinions. And Charlie will sit there and pull his punches, grinding his teeth until he can leave active duty and unleash the full force of his opinions on the world. Um, 
that's my understanding of how this is going to go. Is that generally right, Charlie? Is that how this is going to play out? Yeah, that's 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 right. So as a as an army officer, I'm responsible for carrying out policy. I'm not responsible for for making policy or critiquing policy. So I'll leave that to the two Chris's, and I'll just sit back and I'm happy to talk about my own experiences in Afghanistan and my research that I did while I was in grad school on Afghanistan. The the paper that I wrote. The, the get out of Yale finally uh, paper I wrote was about the Haqqani network, which I know you two are, are intimately familiar with. So happy to talk about any of that. And Chris, uh, before we, we go into the rest of the show, I just want to remind the audience or let the audience know that, that Chris, your guest, it's going to get confusing, yeah, Chris and Chris. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's well planned. planned. We designed Chris, it well. Chris, uh, Chris. Chris, the guest, and I, we go we go way, way back, and Chris and I served in the 160s together. We were both in fifth group, although at different times, and we got to deploy together, and that deployment with Chris was uh, the best shape I've ever been in my life, because Chris <laughs> is quite the CrossFitter, and he had me out there lifting every day out there in the desert in Iraq, so uh, Chris, thanks for being on the show. Well, actually, so just to, to bring out the whole fitness thing, you know, uh, I was doing intermittent fasting, but I've switched to intermittent feasting, where you just flood <laughs> the zone with calories, and then your your body can't process it all, so you can essentially eat more. Yeah, yeah. those were good days, man. Hey, at good some days. point, I want to hear more about this CrossFit thing. That seems like a, a new thing that is just coming into into reality. <laughs> I want to hear what that's all about. That sounds wild. Well, see, the thing is, you can tell I'm not a real CrossFitter because I don't like keep going. I just I, I stopped talking I, I, about I do it. think there's a podcast episode in the future uh about CrossFit and AA and whether or not they constitute healthy cults or unhealthy cults and what what parallels and things wow. we can dive into with that but that's a, that's an episode to be had well, they, do have, the- they, they do have compounds I'm just saying <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I, I bet there's a lot of overlap in the military community between AA and CrossFit. So ah, probably, probably uh, now consi- we got a subject. Consider circles yeah. on that. Yeah, that's well, a, there's a Venn diagram overlap seen. on that that's pretty significant, maybe. Okay, that's that's oh a good subject God. for the future. Okay, so obviously we're stalling. Okay, let's dive into Afghanistan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to level set a little bit just to bring people up to speed, and yeah. let me give you a little bit of background of, of why I'm doing that. In 2012, I was teaching Sunday school and it was like after church and everybody had broken and all the tables had come together and everything. And uh, one of the kids said something about troops in Afghanistan and another teacher said, oh, we we don't have troops in Afghanistan anymore. It's 2012. (laughs) And I I remember, and he looked at me knowing I was in the military and, and kind of waiting for my reaction. And the you know that scene in the Terminator where the Terminator has like seven different options of the things he can say and he has to select which one. I, I, I literally couldn't get words out of my mouth because I had too many options in front of me about things I could say and which which route I wanted to take, whether I wanted to be sarcastic or cutting or derisive or whatever. Point being, I'm acutely aware that even listeners of this show, as awesome and good looking as they are, may not know the current status of Afghanistan. They may not remember how we got into Afghanistan. They may not remember all the benchmarks that we've hit in Afghanistan. So if you guys will indulge me, I'm going to kind of try to do my best to succinctly sum up kind of some major points about Afghanistan. They're not going to be free from bias. I'm going to put a couple of points in there that we can probably debate about, but I just kind of want to level set a little bit just for everybody listening. So 
greatest hits. <laughs> right. Remember exactly. Anything? Exactly. It's exactly that. It's a Spotify right. playlist oh, of, of Afghanistan highlights here. So oh, Afghanistan, uh, I think it's worth saying, had a period of relative stability from 1929 to 1978 and kind of ended up where they are today because they got the privilege of being caught between the two most malevolent ideologies in the last hundred years. Again, this is all my opinion, but I think pretty debatable, uh, defendable. They got caught between communism and Islamic fundamentalism, and that doomed them to everything that they've experienced since 1978. I welcome everyone, and we'll probably post in the show notes to see the pictures of women on the streets of Kabul in the 1970s walking around in miniskirts. Obviously, that no longer exists. Um, when the socialists took over the government, they did it by uh, uh, kind of getting on the good side by force, but but by getting on the good side of Dawood Shah, who was the brother of the president. Um, and uh, Dawood ended up deposing his brother and then lasted for five years before he was thrown out. And that led to the Soviets entering Afghanistan, where they stayed for about 10 years before they left with our help. So obviously we were complicit in helping the rise of Islamic fundamentalism in Afghanistan, a sin that I think is eminently forgivable because foreign policy is not, as I constantly remind myself in the mirror, about uh, doing the right thing. It's about doing the lesser of two evils, and you frequently don't have the chance to do the 100% perfect solution. You can only do you can only deal with your 50-meter target, um, and you usually only have a few of those at a time, and you have to make those immediate decisions more than long-term ones. We can debate about that later as necessary. In the 1990s, the Taliban rose. Um, there was a triumph of Islamic fundamentalism, but it was war, and the warlords fighting against the Taliban were generally the former socialists from the university system in Kabul. We entered, obviously, after 9-11. I remember the Family Guy sketch where I think Brian the dog said something to the effect of, yeah, 18 Saudi guys blew up our two biggest buildings, so obviously we invaded Afghanistan. And I remember in the mid-Bush years, that was supposed to be a very glib and cutting put-down of our foreign policy. Of course, it was exactly that. It was glib, but it was also unthinking because those Saudis were not representing the Saudi government. They were trained in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda was being fostered and harbored and nurtured there. So that's why we went to Afghanistan. Uh, we won't get into all the ins and outs of how the Taliban was pushed out relatively easily, but then flooded back in. Um, we can talk more about those details uh, later on. I won't cover that right now. I think the two seminal books in my experience about Afghanistan were Steve Cole's books, Ghost Wars and Directorate S, which we'll put in the show notes. And I think he sums up well the fact that the Taliban uh, and, for that matter, the Sunni terrorism that's thrived in Afghanistan for all these years has done so largely because of Pakistan's inter-services intelligence or ISI and because they needed a fifth column of terrorists to wage their fight in Kashmir with India. So for your average low-information American voter who may not know that much about Afghanistan, it might be stretching things even thinner to then assume that they know a lot about Kashmir and the strategic importance of that with Pakistan. I won't get into all of that now, but it's worth just pointing out that because Pakistan and India have this tension over this disputed territory in Kashmir, that has led to a lot of the length of our stay, I would argue, in Afghanistan. Also, Pakistan benefits from the lack of stability in Afghanistan. If Afghanistan was its own independent country and a functioning state, it could 
do things like, God forbid, form an alliance with India, and suddenly Pakistan would find itself sandwiched between India and Afghanistan. So having chaos in Afghanistan is mm, a, a cruise to uh, – <laughs> a cruise to Afghanistan's uh, or Pakistan's favor. So uh, we can't affect Pakistan or India too much because both of them are nuclear powers. So obviously the situation gets very, very complicated. At the end of the day, and by that I mean this week when uh, President Biden announced that we would be pulling out of Afghanistan, there are 2,448 U.S. personnel that have been killed in Afghanistan. There have been more than 20,000 wounded. We can talk about those numbers and what that means. Obviously, um, every American personnel that dies overseas is a gut-wrenching death. That said, it's a relatively paltry number if you look at it in comparison with just about every other war in history. And especially for the length of time that we've been there, those numbers can, you can argue, average out uh, relatively favorably as a um, low-intensity conflict and not as a um, full-scale war. Uh, President Biden, when he announced our drawdown, said, uh, and I'm quoting, I believed that our presence in Afghanistan should be focused on the reason we went in in the first place, to ensure Afghanistan would not be used as a base from which to attack our homeland again. We did that. We accomplished that objective. I would argue did that we? exactly. I would argue the motive, means, and opportunity are still there. And so this is where we find ourselves now. Looking at a drawdown date on 9-11, because 9-11 is a day that previously had absolutely no symbolism. So it's great that we're using that as a day to pull out of Afghanistan. Chris, are we right to pull out of Afghanistan? Um, well, okay. Where you stand depends on where you sit. Uh, from a purely pragmatic perspective, absolutely. 20 years of doing the same thing. Um, and expecting different results, that's the definition of insanity, right? Um, but from a idealism, from a, from a, you know, from a principle perspective, um, if we're not going to finish what we wanted to do, like you alluded to, uh, the, the means and motive are still there. It's like, oh, uh, well, they put the gun down. So we're cool. I'm just going to walk away. Yeah, because they're not going to pick it up again because they said they're not going to. Um, and the fact that the Taliban are negotiating just long enough to get us out of there so that they can kick over the Afghan government. I think, I think really we should take it back to, take it back to the blocks. Right. Um, so I remember back in the day, they're like, Oh, we're going to bomb Afghanistan back to the stone age. One thermite grenade later. Okay. Well, we're there. Now what? So if the expectation was that we were going to transform Afghanistan into Switzerland, it's a beautiful place, beautiful place that fantastic people, some fantastic people. Um, it has so much potential, but a rock on the top of a hill has potential, right? Um, I, I would say that, and, and again, I'm, I'm the last person who would ever cast aspersions as to the ability and diligence and dedication that the American forces have shown. And there are many thousands of Afghanis who have fought for their country, but I question whether the Afghan leadership, such as it is, ever really had both feet in the pool. Um, what was it uh, only what five or six years ago? The, the president at the time, he calls all of his advisors in. He's like, how many of you have kids, your kids going to school in this country? And the answer was a resounding zero. Um, and uh, just from a 
from I, okay so my my thing is the western hemisphere i've been looking at the western hemisphere for the better part of 17 years actively engaged in it for the last eight um and whenever you have extractive economies and leaders who are not committed to developing the area that they live in, who are really just trying to sock enough away so they can get to London, Paris, you know, D Dubai, then it doesn't matter how much we want to win. We can't want to win it more than they want to win it. And the people on the ground, unfortunately, the the, the people who are rolling up the camo nets, so to speak, um, they they care. They're they're invested, right? Uh, they they're invested in their country. They want to succeed. But at the end of the day, I I was thinking about this, uh, obviously in preparation for this. I remember I was speaking with a um, a good friend of mine in Nicaragua, and I was asking him why the Nicaraguan people put up with such a sh shitty leader in uh, in Ortega and and his regime. And he said, "La democracia no se come. You can't eat democracy." So if there is no undergirding principle that we want to uphold, if there is no um, line that we're willing to enforce to say, you must do this, then we're basically here. Here's another blank check that you will cash and take to Dubai. Here's another pallet load of $100 bills that you can fly off to, to Qatar. You know, I, I, I think it's time to... It's time to either put up or shut up. Charlie, as our resident camo net rolling up expert, um, how do you respond to that? What do you think? I, th I think Chris brings up a, a lot of great points. The part that I'm most concerned about is what happens after. That's, that's something we as Americans tend to do poorly with. Okay, we're going to do this, but what happens after? So typically, if a major power creates a power vacuum, another major power will step in to fill it. And what I'm worried about is what's going to happen when we leave. President says we're going to leave on X day. Any president says we're going to leave on any day. Okay, great. But what happens next? I read an article just yesterday, Chris, talking about how China is already kind of frothing at the bit to get in there right. and send what they're calling peacekeepers into Afghanistan as soon as we leave. And I think we all know that those those individuals aren't going to be there to keep the peace. They're going to be there to help um, keep, continue to oppress the Uyghurs. There's a there's some Uyghurs in in northeast Afghanistan, and to secure the rare earth minerals and mining rights and all these other types of things. So we're going to pull out. Great, fine. If that's what the president says. Of course, we'll execute. But what happens after? And I think we've seen, unfortunately, kind of how that movie ends. In Iraq, and like we talked about last show, Chris, Iraq and Afghanistan aren't the same. Right. All right, what happens in Iraq isn't isn't exactly what's going to happen in Afghanistan. But just kind of in history, if you leave your private security and you tap out, you you take your ball and go home. Someone else is going to show up to play in that field. So I hope we're thinking through what happens after. So Chris. I'm going to pick up that thread a little bit. I I do think Afghanistan. I think. It's easy to get, look at the second and third order effects of our pullout on Afghanistan itself, on the people. Chris, to your point on how involved their leadership is in their own survival. But I wonder if the story of Afghanistan, as far as we're concerned, really needs to be more about the amount of geopolitical enemies we have in that neighborhood that we are now no longer able to counter or able to even monitor effectively there. 
And uh, President Biden talked about his over the horizon plan that we're just going to do all this over the horizon, which I think people of good, clear, critical thinking capabilities can agree is laughable. I, I don't think that's we'll be able to do anything close to that. Um, what's the advantage to us of pulling out and losing our only platform that literally is adjacent to China, Russia, Iran, all of our major geopolitical enemies? Well, I mean, if if <laughs> one of the benefits of being the target uh, is that you can determine what our, what ammunition the enemy has, I suppose, uh, it's, it's, that's great. Uh, we're 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 the what, suddenly the tar baby of uh, of Southeast Asia or Asia. I I, I think that um, no, realistically, uh, for twenty five hundred troops on the ground, we're paying five billion dollars a year, um, and I. Think about the, uh, yeah, there's a certain amount of stick to itiveness uh, and stick it to your enemy satisfaction that you get from being able to maintain that position. But I, and, and I hate to counter a question with the question, but what are we really getting out of having 2,500 guys there? Uh, okay, so for, from the greater perspective, yeah, we have someone at the table. We have a physical presence in country. We can get bombs on target that much sooner. Um, but are we really? Is the juice really worth the squeeze? It's a great. It, it, uh, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm, but you bring up a great point that I'll. My short term memory will not let me remember if I don't jump in now. So, I. It's a great point. I do think there's an awful lot though that we lose from an intelligence perspective. Uh, there's no way we're going to be able to monitor what's happening inside a country that confusing. It was hard enough to do it when we occupied the entire country. Even having 2,500 troops. I would argue allows us to be an influential per, uh, entity there. We're also, I mean, you can look at the humanitarian aspect. We're uh, a speed bump that is a significant one. Uh, it's not a big force, but mm -hmm. yet because we're there, um, the geopolitical enemies of ours and of Afghanistan's that would like to steamroll in have to think twice. And we are a tripwire that, that doesn't allow them to, necessarily do everything they would want to do otherwise. We're a set we're a consideration that they have to take into account. Um I I also think that there's something to be said for well, yeah, I guess it's the two things. The 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 humanitarian end and then the geopolitical end. We're we're not there, I don't think, to tweak our nose just and say, haha, we're on China's, you know, back porch and we're facing Iran and all that. And we're just going to keep 2,500 troops here to thumb our nose at them. But I do think our ability to, to both monitor those areas and to continue to do counterterrorism, it's, it's worth saying it's not just geopolitical bad guys. We have almost every Sunni terror group with either actively involved or with significant ties to that area. So from just an ITO, an international terrorist organization perspective, it's worth it to us to have a platform that can at least reach out and strike and do counter terror there, isn't it? Well, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be disingenuous. Uh, it's just a, it's just a gift. No, uh, I, I think the, the question is not, I think politically from a political perspective, it's a matter of being able to, this is a matter of somebody being able to say, I was the guy who finished the world, the, the United States longest war. Yeah. Boom. Yep. That's it. That's, that's where that goes. I think from, if I, if I were king for a day, I would say we need to look at right sizing the force that we do have there. Um, because 
when we had the 100,000 in Afghanistan, how many how many cooks was that? How many how many how many legions of contractors were supporting that? You know, how many uh, uh, God bless the mail clerks. We love everyone loves to get mail, but realistically, the the tooth to tail ratio at the height of the the Afghanistan presence, it was there was a there was I remember the traffic jams on. Uh, oh my God! On, on base, and it's like oh, bath. it's it's yeah, yeah on yeah. the bath, yeah. Oh no, it's five o'clock. Everyone's going from their chew to the the chow hall to the Burger King, to not the chow hall. Come on, really? Okay. <laughs> so, I, I'm not. I'm by no means an expert, but I think that if you really wanted to maintain a strategic presence and to have that intelligence access and placement. You need to put the right people there on the ground. So, so I, I personally, I mean, as opposed to talking for someone else, I, I, I don't honestly think that complete pullout is the answer. Uh, but at the same time, and I was thinking about it earlier that Charlie and I, we were both in Korea at one point, not necessarily the same point. I loved the rock three years, best three years of my life. Only part of me that was glad to leave was my liver. Um, the time in Korea if I, I went back there now, because I'm old, if I went back there now, it would not be the same at all. Korea has leapfrogged you know, technologically, socially, they've changed. The, it just it wouldn't look the same, right? If I went back to Afghanistan right now, yeah. I could probably go back to my old shoe unless it's burned down. Um, and it would be the same goddamn thing. That's, that, I, I would say maybe if we right-size the force, and started applying metrics for return on investment relevant, relative to, you know, what are we actually trying to accomplish? Because if staying there is the goal, okay, mission accomplished. It's, it's kind of like NTC rotation. It's like, uh, or, or, even, or I hate to make an all-chief focus lens example, but it's like fight with no, fight with no success, fight with no success, Fight with no success, and then declare victory because you win. Okay, good right. exercise. So I think, Charlie, I think there's three arguments that I've heard for the most part, not just here, but in general, about uh, the pullout in Afghanistan and in favor of pulling out. One is that we've lost too many men there uh, for no good reason. Um, and I can debate with with that. The one that's very common is we've been there way too long. Uh, I just like Chris said, and I'll, I'll say it in a slightly different way, but I, I, I think if we're going to fight the Nazis, uh, good thing we only fought them for four years because if we'd had to fight them for 20, I think we would have started to go, ah, eh, you know, they're really not that bad. Maybe and try to find some face-saving way to exit. I, I think if it's evil and if it's worth fighting, it's worth fighting until the job is done. Um, that, right there, right there, yeah, that's it. I, 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 I think that takes away the, that false narrative of the endless war. But Chris brings up what I think is the really key um, question, which is the strategy versus the tactics. It sounds like we all generally believe there's value to be had by staying in Afghanistan. The issue is, how do you effectively stay there? And besides just being a bump on a log, what exactly do we do? How do we how do we uh, efficiently deploy our forces to make our being there worthwhile? What do you think? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, the Afghans have to take responsibility for Afghanistan. And we've spent a lot of time trying to 
build up their infrastructure, but we're not doing a good job of helping them build up their institutions. And the thing that Chris said that I think our listeners really need to pay attention to is that we can't want it more than they do. I think America has a history of oversubscribing to the concept of democratic peace theory. Whereas if we could just instill Western style democracies in these countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, that everything will be hunky dory because mature democracies don't fight each other. When folks don't realize that some individuals aren't ready for democracy and we haven't prepared them for anything other than fighting uh, the resources are leaving Afghanistan the the best not the not all of the best people but many of the best people are leaving Afghanistan Pakistan is not helping the situation they've got Iran on the other border Turkmenistan Uzbekistan Tajikistan aren't helping a whole lot and now China is waiting for us to leave so Afghan Afghanistan is in a really tough spot and you add to it the fact that you got Pashtunistan in between Afghanistan and Pakistan and you just got a recipe for perpetual disaster. So I think the question we have to ask ourselves in a nation, is it worth what we're contributing? Now, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think no Americans were killed in Afghanistan That's this right. year. I might, no, I might be right. wrong about you're that. Right. Okay. All right. However, uh, these are still people who are risking their health. You, we've all been out there. You got the burn pits. You've got just traffic accidents. You've got, you know, you know, chow hall issues. Um, you got the water, the bottled water going bad, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a, a human cost, but on top of that, there's a huge financial cost. So deploying America is not cheap. You got to send out the Burger King, you got to send the PX, you got to build roads. <laughs> green beans, I, don't forget the green beans. Oh, green the green beans. Yeah. Actually, I really kind of like the green beans. Don't, don't hate me for it, Chris. Um, so we, it's not cheap to do what we do. Is it worth it? I don't know. But I also don't know if just kind of arbitrarily marking a, a day on there is sending the, the right type of message. So it'll be interesting to see what the president decides. And how I like himself. your political answer. I'm going to push back on, on two parts of it. <laughs> um, just and and respond as, as best you can. Uh, I don't want to paint sure. you into a corner on this. Um, one thing that's always bothered me about Afghanistan is, and our approach to Afghanistan is that, yes, we invested a lot of money and time and effort there. But we never invested what was needed. And I'm going to refer to a couple of points. When we went in, we went in on the concept that we were going to have a small footprint and that that was what we needed. And that they, we were right. It worked great, as I said before, for offense. It didn't work great for stability. So when we decided to surge and when the coin pushed for counterinsurgency operations really took off in 2009, the Pentagon asked for a number. And President Obama gave them half that. And in the same speech that he surged these troops, uh, this half uh, half the number requested, he also said, and we're going to start withdrawing them within 18 months or in 18 months. We will start pulling them back out. Oh, so all I need to do is pull my goats back in the cave for 18 months. Exactly. Exactly. And and this was the and this was the problem is that that philosophy has never changed with our approach to Afghanistan. It's always been the little brother in terms of our wars when you look compared to Iraq. And it's never been, I would argue, properly resourced. It's never gotten the attention that it has required. And I say that because the country has shown that it can have some stability. There is some salvation there. But what it needs is, for one thing, on the very basic level, messaging from the United States that says, you're not going to cut and run in 18 months. 
I mean, 2009, Obama put that message out there. Obviously, this is 2021. The fact that we're still there all these years later, we could have messaged this very differently and yet had the same numbers. And that messaging, I submit, would make a huge difference because the enemy, as we all know, has a vote. And if the enemy's calculations are, yeah, I can pull back for 18 months and you guys are going to be gone. Um, if we say, hey, we're going to be here, deal with it. I think that changes their calculus. Yes, it can spike violence, but I think that changes how they approach the problem set. Am I wrong? No, I, I think you're spot on with the whole telegraphing concept that you, you never, it's like, hey, I'm taking this really dangerous route. Make sure that nobody attach, attacks me. You know, it's like, what? what, what? No, no, you don't let your enemy know what your plans are. Um, and I, I totally agree that we never made the full commitment to, to see the thing through. It's uh, it's kind of like a, a puppy. Doesn't know how hard it, how hard it bites, but it bites it bites whatever it can. That's yeah. fair. That's fair. I would also say the other thing, and I'm I'm I don't want to be a broken record on this, but the other the other point I just want to bring up when it comes to Afghanistan and its future is that as much as they can be disingenuous, as much as their political leadership can be callow and they can just be stockpiling money so they can make their exit to Dubai or whatever it is they want to do, um. I think Chris, you said uh, we, or Charlie, maybe you said uh, we can't want it more than they do. I'm not so sure. I I think we can want it more, maybe because to Afghanistan, uh, they they're used to being leveraged. They can survive in this very uncomfortable place. It won't be pleasant, but those of them that have money that can make their escape will. Those that want to work illegally as migrants in Iran will do that. Everyone else can duck for cover. At this point, they're kind of used to that. I think, though, for us, when we look, we have to take into account that, man, it's a great spot to be for us. It does give us that 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 backyard to China, right below Russia, right next to Iran. We can affect a lot. And if our footprint is small, we're a tough target for them necessarily to hit because we can keep our tentacles active while maintaining a very low profile and a low sil- uh, a tough silhouette for them to hit. What do you think, Charlie? Am I wrong on that? Well, I- so I'm actually interested to hear what Chris Please, has got yeah. to say. He and I have served in a, in a lot of the, the same types of units. And I think that what we saw, especially in the 160th and how capable that organization is and uh, 5th Group, uh, great warfighters there as well. But the 5th Soft Troop, of course, is that, that not that soft uh, operations require non-soft support. So depending on what we want in there, if we want a highly capable counterterrorism force, for example, that that takes a lot of support. So I, I do hope that we leave some kind of residual force behind. I don't know what that looks like, but we kind of got to figure out what they're going to be doing, why they're there. And maybe they're there to, to continue monitoring Pakistan and China. Maybe they're there to, to be a thorn in the side of Iran. But I don't think we should be there just to be there, but I also don't think that we need to pull out precipitously. That's fair. Chris, I do want to hear what you have to say, and I'm going to throw one other thing at you if you can answer it as well. You talked before about being king for a day. I'd love to hear, with you as king for a day, how do you resource Afghanistan? What changes do you make, and how do you action things there? Okay. Uh, well, uh, so I – I, uh, well, I was just going to go back and, and uh, you know, looking at it from a real politic perspective, you know, what, what's, you have to you know, find that balance uh, between uh, von Rachau and Hobbes, you know, what, what is the 
What, what is the inherent nature of the nation that you're trying to help build or rebuild in many cases? Um, and then, then I have to dovetail that into, you know, and I, and I don't want to get all how to eat soup with a knife on you, but uh, when Nagel describes how Malaysia worked, the British did it, they, they cleared and held it and compare and contrast Malaysia with Vietnam you know, well, Vietnam is is actually quite successful today, but not as a result of our our activities there. Um, so, how did the, in a nutshell, from this is what I took from the book that, that it was the clear and held method, where you had people that were trusted that got to stay safe in areas that were trusted, uh, and they were able to provide that safety that allowed the actual country to flourish. I I know people. 99% of, okay, lots of people, most people, most people just want to be able to go about their business and be left alone. Uh, I think that that's pretty universal uh, and that whoever provides the least amount of interference into that is probably going to be the government that they choose. Um, the You mentioned that, uh, you know, what, what kind of messaging are we doing? We're failing to do messaging. Uh, and the thing is, yeah, where we fail to do messaging or where we come off sideways with our messaging. Our enemies are messaging. The Haqqanis are messaging. And the other big kids on the block are just ha having a field day messaging. Oh, look at the United States. They left you high and dry. You know, they promised They promised that you were, they were going to take care of your friends forever. Gotcha, gotcha. Sure. You know, oh, wait, sorry. <laughs> that, that, yeah. But, uh, yeah, and, uh, and here we are. So that's, that's what we're taking on ourselves if we go with a complete precipitous withdrawal. However, you know, some people would say, "Hey, you know, we we did our part. Nobody stood up. You chose you chose to fail, uh, and uh, so so we're out of it." I I think that there is room uh, for a footprint left. That I how would I resource it? And now, when I want to clarify the question, do are you talking about composition of of what's left or? Uh, are you talking about who pays for it? Uh, well, I think both, um, because I guess you can't have one without the other. But I think let's stipulate yeah. that if we could fund everything, um, I mean, if we're looking at a what two trillion dollar infrastructure bill, let's assume we got enough spare change mm -hmm. in the in the couch cushions to be able to fund something in Afghanistan. Um, what would that look like, in your opinion? What do you what would you budget does? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, um, so uh, given the realities of the terrain in Afghanistan, I'd say that we have to do Solomon's baby and decide which areas are actually ultimately defensible. Which ones are? I think, from my perspective, again, just small pea in a can of peas. Uh, we tried to fix everything, and the the laundry list or, or kitchen sink uh, methodology did not serve the long term interests of redevelopment or development uh putting a cop in a place because you want to say hey i'm here and i can i can stand up to you and as much as you want to rocket and mortar us okay well that's 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 very bold very bold and uh and uh a lot of people pay the price for actions like that i think that uh if we were to institute a more of a clear and hold method we would need boots on the ground we would not, we would need uh so we've got the 2500 members of the advise and assist training units mm -hmm. uh, tra training people there um i would i could say we keep that and we keep the 
native force that has been developed that we've helped to develop. Uh, we keep training those guys as much as we can, but then we add a footprint of uh, QRF types instead of being over the horizon. You could uh, have them right there in the country to conduct a direct action. Uh, and then you would have to have the intel component um, because you have, if you're uniquely suited to be able to get the information which is necessary, which, which uh, advances U.S. interests. There's a whole lot in there that I want to go through. Um, one of the things that I first thought of when you were talking about fi- first finding the areas that we can defend um, was, I think, Thomas Barfield in his book on Afghanistan talks about the difference in what has made Afghanistan a, to the extent Afghanistan has ever been unified, which um, I think in his book, he argues pretty much from the 18th century until 1978, it was generally unified, but he talks about how it was different in that respect than most other nation states. And what he says is he says, most nation states look at unity as he calls it the American cheese model. So if you get a slice of American cheese, it is a blanket slice. There's no holes in it. Mm -hmm. It is just a a good square and you put it on your sandwich. He said, but Afghanistan functions under the Swiss cheese model. And he said, there are carve outs that you have in that cheese. So when you lay that cheese down, you have said, hey, you know something? Some of those mountain regions, yeah, they're a little backwards. Um, We're just going to kind of contain it, but we're not going to try to levy our power there. We're not going to, we're not going to make a lot of demands on them. Uh, I think, um, Sheikh Rahman, Abdul Rahman, that was the iron Sheikh of Afghanistan. He said, I'm not even going to try to tax those guys. Just exist up there, be in the mountains. You come down, you do your trade, you go back up. It's fine. We're going to focus on everybody else that wants to be part of this. And generally, exactly. if you want to come to my party, come yeah. to my party. No mandatory fun is never fun. <laughs> the army could learn something for this. That's right. So I, so I think hmm. um, that model to me is interesting. And I, and it made me think when you're talking about picking and choosing which areas we look at um, that system, that the philosophy applied to governance overall, uh, if we put real muscle behind that and said, look, we're going to partner again with Afghanistan. And let me just sidebar for a second. I think we're going to be back there within four years. I think we pull out. I don't don't think I don't, this is not the last we've seen of Afghanistan, but when we come back, let me just say that when we come back, I think it has to be a full partnership with them, but the partnership is understanding that we're going to enforce a Swiss cheese model that we're not trying to rope in everybody and that we can separate the outsiders from the indigenous people in Afghanistan. And maybe that could work. Oh, if, if I could Please. just jump in real quick, I think you bring up a very good point that uh, you, the reality is, and, and, and maybe you did it, maybe, maybe you brought it up indirectly, but the reality is that it's, it's not our job to fix stuff. It's we, the army. Well, the army, at least, is designed to fight and win America's wars. Um, the last I checked, the whole PRT concept, that was to fill a gap left by another government agency that didn't get the job done. So if we're trying to completely militarize the concept of reconstructing a country um, and pretend like the Marshall Plan never actually happened and that there weren't State Department guys, there weren't Department of Agriculture people – 
I, again, I think you, you alluded to it earlier, you know, we tried to do it on the cheap. We tried to say, oh, the Army, we could do it all. And because nobody wants to say, yeah, I, I can't do that. Uh, I, I, you know, is it uh, the old logistics saw that uh, you never say no, but you say, these are the choices I can make. You know, these are, this is what I can do. Uh, I think that we, in some respects, we've been a little bit ambitious from a military yeah. perspective. It's like, wait a second, you're gonna you're gonna send out people to win hearts and minds and to advocate for political policy and to, you know, you're gonna take Josephus Grunt off the street and say, all right, now you need to be polite to everybody and not shoot. It, yeah. it, it's very exercise police procedures right. have langu- linguistic skills, yeah. negotiation skills. Yeah, it's a lot yeah. to ask. Uh, so maybe maybe we should ask the question. It's like okay. If we're not going to have the military presence, if we're not, if the end state of, uh, if, we're, if if the end state is to keep the place secure, I, I heard something mentioned in the speech that oh, we're going to keep political relations going and we're going right. to have diplomacy and it's going to be great. Well, uh, you make a very strong argument with a with a firearm yeah. in your hand. I'm yeah, absolutely true. And I think I think what we're what the three of us are starting to. Um, inch our way towards, uh, I think is realizing that, okay, if we're going to stay, we do have to choose between nation building and counterterrorism that, um, in a perfect world, you have both, but maybe the answer is we can't have both and we shouldn't have both. And we need to pick a lane. Charlie, do you think that's right? So I think that both of you brought up some very great points and I, I couldn't help, but think something I thought a lot about when I was in grad school or in during my deployments to Afghanistan and it's that the war in Afghanistan isn't in Afghanistan it's manufactured in Pakistan so Afghanistan can do just about anything it wants when it's got the Haqqani network propped up by ISI next door in Pakistan and everybody knows this is going on Uh, the army chief of staff several years ago uh, wrote in public that ISI was a veritable arm yeah. those are the actual words he used of ISI and Chris and I dealt with the Connie network a lot when we were in Afghanistan it, they have a very vested interest in ensuring that we don't succeed there for their own reasons and until we address that issue address the issue of Pakistan I don't think Afghanistan is ever going to be solved in our favor you're right and I'm, I'm just going to uh, point of order I'm just going to throw this out there as well Jen Psaki the uh, White House spokeswoman the other day said something the effect i'm trying to see if i can find it but she basically said uh we know that russia is consistently acting with uh bad actors in the haqqani network and in uh you know terrorist elements there and i think if it's safe to say if russia is acting in concert with them and i don't mean lock stock and barrel but having relations with them reaching out uh, doing the occasional deal, I think it's safe to say if they are, probably we can assume that most of the other neighbors of Afghanistan are doing that as well, which does dovetail to the fact that there's an incestuous nature, uh, relationship between the international terrorist groups in the country and the external geopolitical actors outside of the country. And those alliances can shift. There's no law saying that they have to continue to sync up together. They can shop for different sponsors from different nation states. The ITOs can shop their services around depending on what the other nation states' targets are. But I think that's a... Um, a relationship that's worth acknowledging. I think it's also worth acknowledging that at this point, I think Thomas Jocelyn at um, Long War Journal has written about this a lot, that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are essentially interchangeable terms at this point. 
um, that to, in my experience, I know af- asking an Afghan to say, well, is that Taliban or is that Al Qaeda? And it's same, same. Um, so the idea that this is, um, that these are separate entities and that somehow we can parse this into separate categories, I think is no longer the case if it ever was. Yeah, and it's it's also important for our listeners to realize that Pakistan is not a monolith. There are pr- plenty of people in, in Pakistan that, that are reliable partners for us, but there are several currents within Pakistan's government that run very counter to what we're trying to do and to America in general. So the seems the, to be a lot of that going around. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And as an intel guy, I'm not mad at him about this. Every nation serves its own interests, and I get that. But I think uh, I think that people need to realize that everyone's not on our side over there, and uh, we're going to have to figure out what it is that we do want to accomplish in the wrong long run, or decisions could be made for us by someone we don't so, like. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Uh, oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say so. Our, in some respects, we're not even on our own side. Let's let's just be honest. And the, there was a we I had a discussion uh, with a bunch of students a while, many many moons ago. And the the, the statement, the I forget how it came about, but the question was, how do you beat? How do you defeat an idea? And the answer was, well, you we have to have a better idea. You defeat an idea with is such as extremism and hate and and you know blind ideology that says kill these people because they look different from you or you know because they do not practice your customs. You defeat it with your blue jeans and your rock and roll, man. You defeat it. You have to get into the that's getting into if you were able to clear and hold and provide safety and show the benefits that we associate with Western democracy, such as clean water shots, uh, being able to send your kids to school without them getting recruited or blown up, then you would have something solid to build on until we, until we can do that, until we can show something other than pie in the sky, like, Oh yeah, it's going to be so good. Once all of this is done until we, until we can show real progress, nobody's going to get on board our crazy yeah, train. You're, you're right. I, I would, in a very intellectual way, I would quibble with the idea that we can beat an idea with an idea. I think you're absolutely right in this example, um, but I, I think you how you dev that out makes all the difference in the world. That the first thing is you have to defeat it with the gun. You have to keep things safe. And if there's a gre- if one ideology is being extra aggressive, then it needs to meet an unmovable object that will not let it continue yeah, on. Get, stop them like a narc at a biker rally. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, so if if I'm hearing this right, it sounds like, okay, before we decide about nation building or counterterrorism as the best course of action, we really, and I think we all agree on this, we, we need to address Pakistan because that will continue to be the leaky faucet here that will continue to engender conflict in this area. How do we do that? What, there's Everyone's taken a run at this. We've had four administrations now take a run at this. How do you deal with a problem like Pakistan? That's our sound of music uh, callback for Charlie and me from last week. Hold that thought. Uh, I have to go plug in, plug this in. Be <laughs> All right. right back. 
Yeah. So I, all I can say on that aspect is I'm glad I don't have to make those decisions. There are no easy answers there. And I'm not going to pretend like if they, if someone would just listen to me about <laughs> Pakistan, that we'd be able to solve that right. problem. Uh, so I do think it's something that needs to be addressed. I, I think there are ways we could address it. I think that uh, we give Pakistan a lot of foreign aid. Maybe we need to think about how that's being used and where that's going. I also think that we need to be less reliant on Pakistan for for our logistics, but I don't have a good solution for that either. They're not going to come in through Iran. They're not going to come in through Uzbekistan if it has to go through Russia to get to Uzbekistan, for example. China is not going to let it in. So how do we put pressure on Pakistan to do Ooh. our bidding in Afghanistan when it's not in Pakistan's interest? We talked before in the show about what, what they want for for Afghanistan, that's fundamentally different than what we want. Totally. So that's a tough nut to crack, and I'm glad I don't have to do. I with totally it. agree. I'll also throw this out. I wonder if we even have to have that answer. If that answer has to hold up all of our decision making, it may. It certainly is going to affect what we do in Afghanistan and what we would do going forward. So when we're back there in four years, which I'm now just going to state as fact, uh, when we're back there in four years. Uh, how much of the Pakistan problem do we need to have clarity on? Or is it something where we can take it step by step and go, well, we're going to do one thing in Afghanistan, and then we're going to try to mess with the foreign aid or to become less reliant on Pakistan, you know, and we just kind of take it one step at a time? Or is it really something that, hey, let's not do anything in Afghanistan until we figure out Pakistan? I think all these things have to be solved simultaneously, at least have to be worked on simultaneously. America is an enormously popular, uh, powerful country. We don't need to, to concentrate on just one thing. We don't have to do things in sequence. We can do things consecutively all at the same time. So I think that that's part of the plan. And I my sense is that people are doing that. The, the people responsible for planning and strategy for the United States are looking at all these things we're talking about and trying to solve these issues simultaneously just everything is so complex we got so many actors putting pressure on the area and so many other things that america is distracted by uh, legitimately or otherwise that i don't know that we'll, we'll come to a good solution certainly not in in the next couple of years and i was thinking chris when when we were talking earlier about something general crystal would say in afghanistan he'd go to these fobs and he'd, he'd ask people uh, what would you do differently if you had to stay here until the war was over. Mm. And what a great yeah. question to ask, because most of us, including me, I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm any different. All we see is the end of our yep. own deployment. And most of us, I think guys like uh, the three of us are kind of a, a, an exception to this because we would go back to the same places year after year. So we had a vested interest in making it better. But I think the, the experience of most American service members is you do, you'll do one tour in one area, you'll never be back. And I, and I get that sentiment. There's nothing I left in Afghanistan on any of my four tours I want to go back and get. I, I'd just as soon never go back to Afghanistan. Um, I, I, I do think Iraq's kind of cool. I'd like to see that stable. And Chris and I actually put a time capsule back there. But, Chris, I dug that up before I came back in my last deployment. So it's gone, too. There's nothing for us in Iraq, either. <laughs> it's nothing sacred. <laughs> it's nothing, nothing sacred. So, 
yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think this is a, such a complex topic, and it's an emotional topic, too. I've gotten several messages from my friends, some of whom are Havoc Journal writers, about how disappointed they are in this. They commit so yeah. much to this fight. We lost friends. We, we, people lost marriages, they, yeah. their health, their sanity. For what? We're looking at this now, and there's like, what was what was the purpose? Why did I do all this? Why I was away from my family? Why do we spend so much money and so much blood and treasure if we're only going to declare victory and and go I home? Couldn't agree more. Um, and that that may be an episode in and of itself. And it would actually, Charlie, just note to ourselves: at some point, it'd be interesting to do one with vets from Afghanistan and vets from Iraq and vets from Vietnam to talk about what it was oh. like when people pulled out and what were your feelings, what were your emotions when you were been embedded with indigenous forces or worked closely with the native population and that sense of, you know, or just what, what was emotionally like? I think there's, that could be a really interesting episode, but for that's for the future. One thing I, I wanted to make sure we drilled on, can you guys believe we've almost done an hour already? This is, uh, I, seriously, we knew this was a rich yep. subject, but my God. Um, but one thing I, I didn't I, want to leave without talking about, though, guys, drugs, drugs. Afghanistan's about the drugs, Change. methamphetamines. Change. What's up, man? I mean, it's. I mean, that's yeah, one dude. thing that we that we're not even touching on is that um, how much or how little of that is our in our interest. I know we're all into the legalization thing in the states, but that is the hub of world's opium hash. Uh, you got marijuana coming out of there. Now methamphetamines are blowing up. Tablet K is a huge thing. Um, you've got – and a lot of these are synthetically made in – well, you know, it is the weekend. So, you know, I, I, I mean, bear that in mind. His drug knowledge is a little <laughs> sus. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So, can I jump please, in really please. quick this? Because actually this dovetails into something that I really wanted to say that, you know, uh, we, we were going – going back because you know i'm slow going back to the discussion of like well okay so we know all this is going on in pakistan what what are we going to do about it well i i think that part of the fundamental issue is that you know going back to messaging we know a lot of stuff about what's going on we know who's doing what to whom we know who the dirty the dirty ducks are right but we don't tell anyone because you know we don't want to be that guy we don't want to be the ones broadcasting with a bullhorn saying these efforts are doing this right right why not? You know, I think as part of the, the whole revised political perspective, we could call, you know, name names, name them and shame them. You know, and the thing is, it's not just the Haqqanis. It's not just the Pakis. It's not just the Russians and it's not just the Chinese. It's not just the Iranians. It's there's so many people at this, this smorgasbord of, of ineptitude and, and evil. You, we could literally put out a, a daily blast of this is the things that the bad people have done today. Uh, but we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Like, so the Russians, they've got RT, the Chinese, they've got the whole ministry of truth or whatever. Um, and if the United States does something like that, they'll say, Oh, you're just like them. Is, is that implicit or, and, and if so, would there not be a way to at least distinguish it by saying, all right, here's our verifiable sources. Here are some facts Here's the photographic evidence. Catch them red-handed and let the world know. Because us knowing and having the great satisfaction of knowing who bad things are going on, that's cool. I think there's a real point that you're making about where intelligence 
needs to bleed into information operations and where it doesn't. And um, I'm I'm just I was just a lowly enlisted guy, Charlie. You're you were anything but. What do you think? Where do you think that watermark is where intelligence should bleed into information operations and and weaponizing the message? So knowing the truth is hard. Most people aren't ready for it. And Chris, we've talked about this on the show before. You know, we got the Havoc Journal, which we, we spent a lot of time making sure it's accurate and, and authoritative as much as we can, even though we got we got a lot of opinion in it. But it's not the most popular thing we do. Article 107 News, our satire site, which is completely invented, is was way more popular when we used to spend a lot of time on it because uh, people believe what they want to believe, and you got Russia Times, you got you got the the Chinese efforts, the the Iranians, all of our enemies, very very good at introducing doubt in the American public because America wants to believe the worst about itself, and that's unfortunate. Uh, and I don't know a a good solution to solve it, but you try to point out the the facts, people. Produced. We talked about Russia. We talked about Afghanistan. I remember reading the article about President Tr- Trump ignoring the bounty that Russians were putting yeah. on American heads in Afghanistan. Yeah. You remember that? And I remember I got a message from a family member about it, asking me about it, how I could um, support a president who ignored this type of thing. And I remember talking to him about it. It's like, first reports are always right. wrong. Um I, I don't know what we expect the president to do about something like this, even if it's true. And it would come to find out now, like a week ago, it was completely false to begin with. But it doesn't matter because the damage was already done. So knowing the truth is hard. Most people aren't ready for it. And, and to answer your question directly, Chris, that the, the intelligence uh, community inside America owes the, the president and other decision makers the most accurate information we can provide them so they can make the best decisions. So I hope we can make a good contribution for that going forward. Well, yeah. And no, as, no, no, as, no, I, as somebody I, that trafficked in single source uh, reporting, let me just say, Charlie, the report was not inac- 100% inaccurate. It was low to moderate confidence, which to me means that was single source reporting, which the military specializes in. So I will I'll go to my grave defending single source reporting uh, as, as at least the, the beginning of a thread, but if not the final conclusion of it. But th- to me, just for my own shits and giggles, I'll just throw this out there. When I heard about the Russian story and the bounties put on our heads, to me, whether or not it was true, I I think if the story came out when I was over there and I was like, it's true-ish. I mean, who cares? I mean, whether or not you can nail it down. I mean, yeah, it's, it, I mean, sure. I mean, that it was so, it's such an un- to me, it was such an uncontroversial allegation, um, and there was no specificity to it. So you're talking – I mean, they tried to nail it down to two specific attacks, and you know whether or not there was something there, I have no idea. But um, but just in general, of course, why, why wouldn't Russia try to leverage bad guys in Afghanistan to hurt us? We certainly did to Russia. Well, of course not. So well, how is this controversial? Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I would expect them to be doing that. That doesn't rock my world. That's kind of like that's war. That's geopolitics. Right. Right. Chris, did you have something you want to say? You look pretty enthusiastic there for a second. Well, I just I wanted to clarify that uh, understanding that the intelligence professionals, their job is to provide the best intelligence to the decision makers. I would say that um, – the, there is a, and I, um, you might have already discussed this on the show, that there's an issue with overclassification, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that many things that 
don't necessarily need to be at that level, get to that level, and don't get to the people who need to or who would benefit from having the information. And I think that uh, one of the initiatives that Paycom is going to do right now, um, you'll you'll see they have a an open source website of articles that they put together, and they said, you know, if you follow the dots, this is this is what's going on, uh, and that is of great utility when messaging friends and partners. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah. and, Sorry, keep going. I didn't yeah, mean to interrupt. So, yeah. no, 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 no. I'm glad I'm pilot. Finally, said something. <laughs> no, wrong. no, no. Please, um, <laughs> no. Listen, the overclassification thing is is a big deal. I would also just say when it's about providing information to decision makers. The American public is a major decision maker. Now, that doesn't mean everybody should pull a Snowden and go, well, the, the world needs to know what's going on here. But what, and people, Charlie, I think you and I have talked, I remember years ago about, you know, people with security clearances need to obey their security clearances. Um, yes. and, and we both feel pretty strongly about that. That said, I think it would, the, the government would do well to look at how stringent those classifications are. And look for the opportunities for rank and file to be able to shed light on things. Um, I am not trying to out myself as somebody that's chomping at the bit to, you know, talk about classified information. But there are plenty of times I've had to bite my tongue. I'm sure, Charlie, you've done the same where you just go, okay, all right, yeah, I'm just going to sit on this, uh, but I could add something here. And there's times where it's occurred to me. You know, there's plenty of cop shows on TV. It doesn't mean that people, you know, think they know everything about police work. Um, that sometimes a little bit of transparency can go a long way because sometimes there's stories or or issues at play that if you can shed light on it would help the American public. And that's certainly not something that a decision I can make at my level. Um, but I think it's something that would be interesting for people in governmental ca- capacities to look at. Yeah, and it's not just the intel community that overclassifies everything. We we recently did the the extremist training, and and it was it was good training and everything, but it was classified. Uh, I think the new the new caveat is CIU controlled uh, unclassified CUI. information. Mm-hmm. Thank you, CUI it used to be FOUO. It's like why it's is this classified? The basically FOUO. Why why can I talk about this and share this? I don't understand this at all. But we do overclassify. And Chris, I think we took, we might have talked about that on the show before about overclassification and, and what a drama it is and how it affects um, how it affects our ability to to work with partners and and neighbors on getting the job done. Um, I I understand why stuff needs to be classified, but we need to avoid uh, overclassification as much as we can. Yeah, you're right. So just, sorry, just go as, ahead, Chris. Just as a, just as a, an example, uh, the, for the Brits. Uh, for something to be classified in such a way that it cannot be shared with others, it has to go to the first 07 in the chain of command. Imagine how, how that would change the dynamic of production. I mean, production would scream to a halt because nobody wants to get in trouble. But <laughs> they, 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 we fail to incentivize shareable information. That's, a, yep. that's all mm-hmm. I, yep. Interesting. I believe. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, Charlie, do you remember working with the Brits at all? Do you remember their? Uh, yeah. Do you remember how how that was? In my experience, they were very. Yeah. Uh, they were. It was. Uh, let me let me just say it was a very efficient way of sharing information that I always found from them. So we we did that, and uh, when Chris and I were in our, uh, Iraq, the last time I think that was the last time I was there. I'm not sure if it was the last time Chris was there. The the Brit that worked for me 
was uh, getting us good information out of Basra, of the human reporting, and our elements were were not our task force, but other intel units were taking that same reporting, sending it out wow. in their own reports, which is common practice. There's nothing wrong with this. But then it became secret, <laughs> no form. So I couldn't share their own reports back with them because this other agency was classifying it no foreign. It was it was really it was really an issue. I, I think a Canadian officer. So no, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, a Canadian officer uh, helps develop plans and policies for SOF at NORAD. Once it once they go into the room, put the stamp on it. He can't look at the plans that he made. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it seems legit. You can't trust those Canadians. They're sneaky. You know, oh, oh, it's, it's, the, it's the Timmies. What, what was the movie? The Poutine. What was the movie where, where the Canadian Secret Service was like at the end of the movie was like, and this is a spoiler, but I think this movie was like 20 years ago. I want to say it was like one of the Bourne movies where like at the end they were like, I'm Canadian Secret Service. And everybody was like, huh? Like Canada has a secret. What? Who are you? Like Wait, that's, that's a thing? thing? Really? Like seriously? Oh, so funny. Um, so speaking of 20 yeah. years ago. No, no, go ahead. Okay. It's, it's completely, completely got nothing to I do with it. it. I watched Aliens with my 14-year-old the other night, and I feel like I won Father of the Year. I'm just like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that movie was one of the things that made me want to join the Army, that platoon. Uh, Aliens, I was like, I want to be a space Marine, but I can't do that, so I'm going to join the Army instead. Oh, uh, if only because, Trump had been president so many years ago. You could have had Space Force then. <laughs> We'd have a Space, yeah, Force, 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 Force then. <laughs> You'd have been right there, Charlie. <laughs> Um, yeah, Charlie. Hey, another note to ourselves. Yeah. At some point, we should do an intelligence-related episode because I think that we could get into the overclassification stuff and other spooky shenanigans. You know, and talk that through. Yeah, I think we got a, we got a lot of writers who have an intel background. Yeah. Uh, I think that would that would be be interesting. Amazing. I don't know. Can't trust those guys. <laughs> deep staters. Yeah, who could? Now listen. Um, so hey, I'm not deep state. I'm steady state, man. I'm keeping the wheels on the bus. <laughs> Um, now listen, since we've uh, now gone over an hour and I'm thinking yeah. about our humble, awesome producer, Mike and his single self, which who I take advantage of constantly by giving him long episodes to edit when, cause I know he doesn't have kids and a wife to worry about. Um, <laughs> but in, so saying all that to wrap this up, sort of, um, Charlie, let's talk about yeah. Second mission. Do we have more stuff to talk about with them this week? Yeah, yeah. So I think the last time we were on the show, we were talking about Aaron Kirk's book, The Hill. I got the proof copy back from that. It looks amazing. We're going through it right now to uh, check for any final errors on it, but our, our editor was a superstar, so I'm not finding any so far. So that book's going to be released on the 1st of June. And I'm really excited about it because it's the first time that we really get to tell a vet's story in depth. You know, in Havoc Journal, we tell vet stories in a thousand words, or if you're Jimmy Gagliano, five, six thousand <laughs> words. But, you know, they're all they're all great stories. But this one is the first full-length publication we ever produced. So very excited about that. A uh, number of other books in the hopper, and, and we're just looking forward to helping vets get their stories out that way. And now that the COVID restrictions are lifted, Second Mission is going to be able to do some other things, in-person events like writers' workshops and things like that, really helping get the the vets out there and doing their second mission. And and Chris, I don't want to I don't want to do any spoilers for what you've got going on, but I look forward to us partnering with you and, and the thing that you and I discussed. I'm very excited about your upcoming event as yeah, well. Yeah, uh, news news to be put out in the dangerously near future. Do you have a launch date for the book? Do you know when the book's actually going to be available? One June. One June. Okay. One June. All right. Um, and we don't have anything we can link to, do we, for that? 
for show notes? No, not, not yet. Not yet. We'll make sure we're Elise is working with us on the the um, the propaganda to get that out in in rolling. Maybe we need to talk to Russia Times about that. They, they got a pretty good propaganda system here in America. Um, get our get get the word out about the book and the the other materials going with it. And I hope to get the author on your show. I think you'd really like talking to Aaron. He's a he's not like us. He's a Marine. He's not a soldier, but uh, he's he had a very interesting life and his his storytelling is is great. And I'll make sure both of you get a copy of the book because I think you'll really appreciate. There's, there's it. nothing worse than an articulate Marine. That's all we have on them is if we can act like we're smarter than them and if they're smarter than us it's like god damn it like seriously yeah, 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 yeah they're not doing us any favors um well hopefully uh yeah i would love to have them on that'd be awesome that'd be awesome um right. thumbs up to all that uh chris i i didn't even uh get to socialize this with you do you have anything that we need to plug anything at all any organization anything like that and if not you can just no, say no and no, I, I do. I do want to give out a shout out to uh, the Fifth Group and One uh, Sixtieth. Uh, just some amazing people, and to the entire community of listeners. Uh, appreciate y'all uh, making it this far, and uh, I think we're all in this together. And that's. Uh, I think we're all. We are well. If we do well, if we remind ourselves of that, that uh, past, present, future, we have to. We have to get, stay focused. God damn, little positivity. Well, that's about that. Yeah. I love it. I, no, we do need it. Well, listen, I think on behalf of the audience, I think I think this was a really fun one. And I think, Chris, you being here was awesome. Um, we got to do this again. Uh, everybody, subscribe. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. If you're on iTunes, five-star reviews, please and thank you. Um, I really want to emphasize that because feedback would be great. Um, you give us a five-star review and then rip us apart, but the five-star review would help our metrics. Your feedback will help us get better and better each week. Um, so if you're able to, we deeply appreciate it. Show notes will be at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. So we will list, I, I will go through this episode on my own and try to reference every single thing that we name dropped throughout here. So I probably will not be doing anything else this weekend. Um, but all the show notes will be there. Also, you will see, um, I do things a little bit differently because why stop now? Um, and I also have alibis on the weekly Podbean, weekly havoc at podbean.com. Uh, so anything I misstated, anything I forgot, anything I didn't say the way I meant to, or needs further context or explanation, um, I will wake up at two in the morning this morning and go, Oh my God, why did I say it like that? And I will go on there and put that on as well. So if you go to the weekly you'll see all my alibis. You will also see show notes and occasionally you'll even see an alibi from our guests if they brain fart, but generally I'm the only one that does that. Gents. Thank you guys for being here. As always, thank you to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Chris and to Charlie Faint. We will see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. And by the way, I I, uh, I noticed something that you did um, that, that goes to your 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 intellect and your subtlety do you you were you gave the the name of an example of a soldier over the course of the of the the podcast do you remember the name that you used oh it's a uh josephus yeah you remember what we were talking about at the beginning the very first thing you talked about with your son about yeah about masada 
Josephus was the Roman historian who wrote about Masada. I was like, I saw what you did. I saw that. I know what that reference is. No, 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 no. That, that was really just me, like, gestalting the name. Like, <laughs> it, it was just in the, in the RAM, man. It was, it was not a conscious decision. You're just deep in the gray matter. That's awesome. Yeah. That's Sticky great. Sticky gray matter. Just uh, don't stare at anything too long. That's, that's the, this brain I've got.